Sacred Space. So welcome back to the second part of uh, Sacred Space on West Limerick 102 FM. Uh, my name is Shane Ambrose and still in studio I'm today with John Keeley on uh, the what is Mission Sunday and the 14th uh, or the 14th of October. Now, as we said at the top of the program in Rome this morning, uh, Pope Francis is canonizing six new saints or seven new saints for the church. Um, th- there include uh, Pope Paul VI, uh, Giovanni Battista Mutano, of course, who was the, the Pope and who died in 1978. They include Francesco Spinelli, who was a priest, a uh, Dawson priest and founder of the Institute of the Sisters Doors of the Most Holy Sacrament. Vincenzo Romano, who's also a Dawson priest. Uh, Maria Caterina Casper, who was the founder of the Institute of the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ. Nazarina Ignatia de Santa Teresa de Jesu, who is uh, the founder of the Congregation of the Missionary Crusaders of the Church. And also included is a 19-year-old called Nunziuno Zolprizio, I think is how you pronounce his name. He was a 19-year-old Italian layman beatified by Pope Paul VI on the 1st of December 1963, and Francis uh, um, is also canonising him this morning. But one of the more interesting candidates who has been canonised this morning and declared a saint of the church is Oscar Amulo Romero, the former Archbishop of San Salvador. And we are delighted to welcome on the programme this morning Sister Louisa Rourke uh, in Dublin, who is going to talk to us about Oscar Romero today, and in particular the, the story of this new saint that we're going to have in the church. So, good morning, Sister Louise. How are you keeping? Good morning, thanks. All well. All, All well. Excellent. As I said, this morning in Rome, Pope Francis is creating um, seven new saints of the church. So, I suppose the first thing we should say is, you know, it's the, the canonization process is the end of a long process where uh, people who have died uh, you know, go through several steps in terms of becoming, uh, becoming saints. So, they're servants of God, venerable beatified or blessed and then of course they're created saints and and of course this morning we want to talk in particular about Oscar Romero so Louis, Sister Louise in terms of Oscar Romero I know you in particular you have a particular uh, affinity for the good man from um, El Salvador so why don't you tell us a bit about him and his background and where he came from great yeah I would love to it's interesting I never realised I suppose that I had such a connection with Oscar Romero and this was probably maybe about 15 years ago when I was talking with my mum and I realised that the due date that my mother was given was actually the 24th of March 1980, which was the day that Oscar Romero was assassinated. Now, I was somewhat precocious and decided to grace the world with my presence two months previous to that. So, But I still always held the date in a way, um, also because it was the, the vigil of the Annunciation. But... When I was discerning religious life, I didn't realise, again, that this great saint, as we'd be able to call him from today, was going to have a huge impact on my life. And it was due to a film that was brought out called Romero that I first encountered his story. And that always stuck with me because you really see the struggle of this man, first of all, um, a very human struggle um, as a bishop and in the face of just what was going on in the society and for his people and he really stepped up and he fought for them but he wasn't always like that you know when we look back over his journey he really he suffered because he was very much a quiet conservative priest um, a bookworm 
if we want to call him that, um, not seen as one who would ever challenge an institution. So even in the choice of Romero as a bishop, it was considered a safe choice. He wouldn't be somebody that would make any kind of ripples. But even going back to his earlier years, you know, we can see, I suppose, even that character building that he got as a young child. He was born into a family of 10, so that's a pretty big family. And his father was in charge of a telegraph office. I find that very interesting because later on we'll see how Romero really used the radio as a means of communication to preach the gospel, but also to stand up and fight in the name of the peasants, really, the poorest of the poor. And he would use the media, he would use the radio in particular, something that he felt all people had access to. So already from an early age, he had this exposure to how, I suppose, communication could create a livelihood for his family, first of all, because later on he would help his dad there. But the family were quite poor and they couldn't afford to send him to school after the age of 12. So at that stage he became an apprentice carpenter and apparently was quite good. And even though he was working as an apprentice, he was he was really resolute that he wanted to become a priest. So at the age of 14 he went to the minor seminary. But not too long after that he came home because his mother got quite sick. And considering that the family was quite large... He came home to work in the gold mines there to earn money to buy medicine for his mother. So after a year or two at home, he went back to the seminary again. And at that stage, I suppose, you know, the, the social and global situation was changing. And he was sent to Rome from 1937 to 1942. And that was a difficult time for him because as he continued his journey towards priesthood, his dad died and his brother died. So he was in Rome and they were at home. So, having been ordained in um, 1942, he began to, I suppose, create a name for himself as being this quiet priest, but yet, um, I suppose, part of the fame that he acquired from that state of being a young priest was his sermons. They called him, you know, another John Chrysostom because he was quite eloquent in his speech. He knew how to use words. He knew the power of words. But already he was seeing how his sermons could provoke the conscience of people just with regard to being aware of the needs of the poor and also not just the, the physical needs but also the spiritual needs of the poor. So that was kind of the, the earlier years before 1970 when he was made a bishop. And as I said, you know, the choice, he was as shocked probably as many people around mm. him but he was seen as a safe choice and somebody who wouldn't cause too many problems, who wouldn't also provoke the conscience of many of the other bishops who unfortunately had chosen to align themselves with certain politics, with the, the higher classes of society. So they thought, you know, he'd be a good choice. He'd go back to his books and he wouldn't really do anything to, to disturb them from their comfort zones. So that was kind of the lead up at the, the earlier years. And in terms of his um, past, early pastoral duties, it included parish work uh, and he was also a chaplain and he was also involved with the Dawson newspaper, which was something um, that came up again. In 1967, he was appointed as the Secretary General of the Salvadorian Bishops Conference. And then, of course, he was ordained Auxiliary Bishop uh, in 1970 uh, for the Diocese of... I've lost my mark. One second. 
actually became Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977, so already he had had those few years of experience as a bishop, and even still at that stage he was very much quiet, mm. he kind of mm. tied the party line, but there's what he calls the Gethsemane experience for him that really changed his whole pastoral vision. It changed who he was as a person, but it changed who he was as a bishop. Um, he was no longer one that would just kind of go along with the rest of the sheep in a way sheep not considers the, the pastoral sense of sheep but just following obviously without thinking um, he really stepped up to become the shepherd of the sheep as Pope Francis says a, a pastor that had the smell of the sheep and that defining moment for him was actually the murder of a fellow priest a priest brother who was Father Rutilio Grande who was a Jesuit priest and Father Rutilio Grande would have been a friend of Oscar Romero. Um, he was the master of ceremonies at his Episcopal ordination. Mm. was just 17 days previous. So um, they would have studied together in um, homiletics. So already there were acquaintances there. And even though I suppose that varying social understandings, theologies, um, Rutilio Grande's story is it's very interesting, but... You know, he went through his own journey of trying to understand you know, where the Lord is calling him to minister and to understand also the theology of liberation or liberation theology and the options for the poor, what that meant as it was lived out in daily life. And that challenged him deeply. So even though maybe at times there would have been on opposite ends of the spectrum, there was something in Rutilio Grande that Oscar Romero was able to identify with and they became good friends. And that... The, I suppose the crucial defining moment for Romero when he gets the news that he has been assassinated, that Father Rutilio is dead, um, alongside an old man and a young man who were accompanying him. And in the back of the car also were three other children who the gunman let go because they realised that they knew the children and one of the men just told the children to run. Um, but at that stage they had already... And murdered the the old man and the younger boy and Father Garanda, so the children were able to explain what happened. And already, the I suppose the the social climate and the conflict was heightened. Um, Rutilio Grande was the first priest assassinated before the civil war started. Um, so it's it marked not just the turning point for Romero, but also the turning point for the church. For the society that suddenly you know this this was getting very real and um and he wasn't the first um and he wouldn't be the last even up until the day of the funeral of oscar romero mm. um mm. the people were assassinated because they stood up for the poorest of the poor because they challenged the institution that was oppressing and that was really taking from the poor that it denied them the basic needs of food of water, of health care, of education, basic needs that were in control of the, the army, essentially, mm. and, mm. and the government that aligned with them. So um, it's, you know, if, if you've the opportunity to see the film, I know often films can do a great injustice to the actual story of people, but it's, um, Raul Julia is the actor that plays Romero, and He's an excellent actor. You can see the heartbreak. You can see the experience. But you can see also the resolution that things have to change. And the first thing that Oscar Romero does after the death of Rutilio Grande, 
remember he's Archbishop at the time, so he issues a decree over the radio that all the Sunday masses are to be stopped and all the churches are to be closed and that there will be one mass. And at that one mass, um, for the funeral of the three, all three were, you know, the funeral rites were together, which even in that was a statement because you know, the priest would have been held up. Um, one of the reasons Father Rutilia would be marked was because he was a man with an education. He was teaching in the university, and yet he chose to live in one of the smaller villages with the people, and he challenged from grassroots. And for the, the military, that was dangerous because it was telling people they had rights, mm. they had choices, mm. that they could stand up for themselves. But and also he's a man who had lots of experience and had been exposed to liberation theology in its better form. So he had a passion within him that needed some kind of channel and, um, and he paid the price for it. I suppose part of the context at the time um, was the situation in El Salvador where there was uh, a right-wing government in control. And the problem was the struggle for land and land ownership, where 14 Salvadoran families controlled over... uh, By 1971, they controlled over 70% of the or sixty percent of the arable land in the whole country of El Salvador, and you had the you had had the problem where peasants and farmers' land, rights to lands were being taken away, and the military was backing these families up. So there was a sense, a great sense of oppression in El Salvador, of course, at the time, which culminated um, like Oscar Romero was installed as. Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977 and then in 1979 there was a, a military coup and the Junta, the Salvadoran military uh, Junta took, took over and they were in power until 1982 um, which, which is which of course is, is, is important because it's the context to why you have these people being killed and the disappearances and the executions that were happening which of course um, as you said Louise started off with that murder um, of of, of uh, uh, Father 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 Grande is that, is that how you pronounce his name? Grande, Silvio Grande, uh, and yeah. it's interesting because Grande means big, and he was big in vision, and he was big in his outlook, um, and ultimately he paid the price for it. Um, it's interesting because actually, Rutilio Grande is servant of God, and one of the things that Pope Francis wishes to do is to move forward the cause also as we're speaking of saints, of Rutilio Grande, but also the, the two men, the young and the old, who were with him and who were assassinated for their faith um, because he was a priest and because the, the old man accompanied the priest and the young boy was a server. So, you know, these were really hatred for the faith, which was seen as giving the people a power, you know, that it was true faith. It wasn't just the spiritual. It was empowering them. Um, because they were now aligned with people that knew what they were talking about. Uh, All of this, um, after the death of Father Grande, Romero's kind of, if you you like, he almost underwent a kind of um, a Damascene change. Um, Someone said to me, it was almost like he got a belt of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's interesting because he himself called it the Gethsemane experience. It reminds me rarely of, of St. Paul, you know, the, the conversion of St. Paul. Um, some artists depict Paul as the one of the horse. So it's, it's that moment. Um, there's another moment in that film that, again, always resonated with me personally because it became kind of my motto for my, just my Christian discipleship for the past 20 years. And you can see um, when Oscar Romero 
you know, time after time he's hearing that friends are being assassinated, people are disappearing. Um, this was the other thing. So many people disappeared. Um, people were being found, killed. Um, and, you know, you can see the anguish in him and there's the fight for him that this has to be resolved. Um, and yet he's conscious of his own humanity and what can he do? Um, he's only one person. And there's a very poignant scene where he's walking along the roads there and alongside the fields. Um, he's thinking of the campesinos, the, the farmers that are just being... Um, just anything that has been taken from them. And he's casa gazol dusty. Um, and it's just like he's a, a wandering... He's lost and um, he falls to his knees and he has this lovely phrase which I think really is just the act of surrender that gives him the adrenaline, the spiritual adrenaline to go ahead and he says, I can't, you must, I'm yours, lead me. And obviously he's, it's a prayer, um, it's a very short prayer, but it's, I can't is the acknowledgement that he can't do this on his own, that he may be the Archbishop but that this situation is really, it's just on, on a magnitude that's beyond his capacity pastorally and as a human. And then I'm yours is the act of surrender. So he's handed himself over to the Lord. And he always knew that his life was at risk. You know, he had so many death threats. Um, often, you know, they approached him and said, you know, we'll give you a bodyguard, we'll give you protection. And he refused it, saying, you know, well, what what good is it if the shepherd is protected and the sheep are still prey to the wolves? So he was very conscious that he had to walk with his people, even if that meant death. Um, and I think when he understood that, there was a peace with him because he knew, um, you know, he'd, it was interesting throughout the, the years of conflict in El Salvador, different clerics and different bishops, and because he had been in Rome, they'd said to him, you know, come to Rome until things calm down until the conflict settles, until the government is stable. Um, and he always refused, you know, he, he wants to be with the people. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, the rest of the he says to the Lord, lead me, I can't, you must, I'm yours, lead me. Um, and the Lord did lead him, you know, he led him in ways that maybe Romero never thought. Um, mm-hmm. I think he would have been happy in his room with his books. He was a scholar, he was an academic. Um, but yes, the Lord used him as an instrument and he became really the mouthpiece of God to get this message of just solidarity with the poor out. Um, and it did get out. And what's interesting, you know, that um, it seems a long time ago, but yes, you know, Latin America was still quite out there. And even, you know, for when I was looking at the context and everything, you know, we were, as missionaries, we were used to going more to, uh, to Africa um, but the Latin American context at that time really became the place of mission. And already in the, the late 60s, not long after the Coast Vatican II, different Irish missionaries started going out, but certain groups that aren't kind of traditional missionary groups, like the Franciscans um, and the Sisters of St. Clair, went out to El Salvador in 1968 and established a presence there because of the conflict that was happening and because of the oppression and the injustice. So, you know, it was interesting to see how already this was on the global map in a way, and that somewhere small like Ireland um, was ready to react as well. And not just react, because often religious have their context there, but um, the Irish Bishops' Conference um, really took it on as a personal mandate. 
and in different ways became connected with El Salvador, and especially with um, in solidarity with Oscar Romero. You know, mm. I think that's, um, you know, I'd be curious to see what kind of media coverage this would be given throughout the day, you know, that um, because of the Irish connection and because of, I suppose, Trocra's connection with it and, you know, that we have different places in Ireland, like we have a shrine to um, Oscar Romero in our little town of Athlone. And again, that would be the Franciscan connection because the friary is there and mm. some of the, the friars would have ministered in El Salvador in Latin America. Um, but hopefully, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for us here to explore and to understand what can he teach us today, you know, um, mm. just even, you know, as, as a people, you know, we're fighting different battles at the moment. We've got the homelessness crisis there as well, you know, um, need Romero to stand up and kind of rally mm. the troops and um, and use the media for good as well. So that's... Yeah. There, there were two, two um, because of course as you said Louise his homilies on the Sundays uh, were broadcast on the radio from the cathedral and leading up of course to in 1980 in March 1980 before he was assassinated there was um, a couple of homilies that he gave which were very powerful but also very provoca- provoking I suppose in one sense I have a quote here as a pastor I am obligated by divine commandment to give my life for those I love even for those who would assassinate me For that reason, I offer God my blood for the redemption and resurrection of El Salvador. Martyrdom is a grace that I don't believe I merit, but if God accepts the sacrifice of my life, may my blood be the seed of liberty and sign that this hope will soon become a reality. May my debt, if it's accepted by God, be for the liberation of my people and a testimony of hope in the future. And then there was another one, um, he, and people were asking the question, why did Romero die? And he, he, his own response to it was, he did not hesitate, I suppose, to speak truth to power. And he said, let us not be afraid to be left alone if it's for the sake of truth. Let's not be afraid converting people's sham flattery. If we don't tell them the truth, we commit the worst sin, betraying the truth and betraying the people. And of course, that led us up on that led him up, I suppose, to March 1980, um, where there had been quite a, 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 a string of things from the from the army. And of course, Louis, that led to him uh, calling and ordering the army to to stop killing um, people. Well, indeed, if you look, there's um, one of it's a very provoking book. Um, it's called The Violence of Love. Even the title, you know, How Can Love Be Violent? But it's, it's really, I suppose, the synthesis of the first quote you just read there, that um, the violence that the people were shown towards Romero and those who stood up for those who were, who were oppressed was a violence that had to be counteracted with love. And it, like, it must have been a hard journey for Romero to come to that point because it's really living out the gospel in its truth. You know, who is my neighbour? You know, his one of his very last homilies, he, again, you know, if some of these are available as audio files to hear them, they're in Spanish, but um, to hear the passion in his voice where he's pleading with the members of the army and the military and the government to put down their guns. Um, and he calls them brothers. He said, you're from our families. You know, so this was like that war divides families, it divides communities, it divides the society that um, the people that were picking up arms were the people that were killing their own families as well. And that was just the... Every war isn't just, but um, Romero really just couldn't 
stand by and see people that could be given that second chance and he pleaded with them he really it was kind of the heart to heart please put down the guns mm. and um and he really at the the end of that sermon and again in in his own mother tongue it's even stronger and he just kind of screamed stop the oppression um and that was like near the the end of the last week of march and um, he died on march 24th um, but already two weeks before he was assassinated, there was a suitcase full of dynamite placed behind the altar where he celebrated Mass and um, refused. It didn't go off. So um, later on they said that if it had it gone off, it wouldn't have just blown up the church, but it would have blown up the whole neighbourhood. You know, so um, that was, I suppose, how much a thorn in the flesh Romero was. You know, and it was to get rid of him at any cost. And he didn't flee. He could have, you know. Is that um, Romero had a, a connection with Opus Dei? Um, he had a good friend who was his spiritual director originally. And again, because he was in Rome, he had had these connections. And um, this priest, Father Fernando Saenz, who was a Spanish Opus Dei priest, who later actually succeeded Romero as Archbishop, um, he had told him, you know, come and um, come to Rome. Um, but he wouldn't go, and you know he said of him, um, they killed him during the offering of the bread and the wine. It was as if it were a marvelous sign of him having offered his life for his people, for the poor, for justice, and for peace. Because Romero, he had just given his last homily, and he was making his way from the pulpit over to the altar to prepare for the presentation of the gifts there, and um, that was the moment that the bullet hit him and it pierced his heart and after a few moments he breathed his last so it was um he was in his vestments as a priest you know it was really the paschal lamb the the victim um and it was the priest that they wanted to kill it was the voice they wanted to stop um and even though they thought they'd silenced the voice you know i said romero knew and um, that an assassination was on the cards. It wasn't a case of if, it was a case of when. And he had already said, you know, if they kill me, I will rise again in the El Salvadorian people. And it's that seed. Um, a lot, there's a train throughout Romero's homilies and thoughts from John's Gospel, and it's the grain of wheat that has to die to give life. Um, it's interesting because I was even just, you know, reflecting on the... You mentioned Paul VI as well. Paul VI will be canonised and Romero in the same ceremony along with a number of others. But um, I think it's, there's something quite beautiful about the fact that the two miracles for Paul VI involved a baby in the womb. Um, and the miracle that... The, because, because Romero was martyred, a miracle wasn't required for him for the stage of beatification because he was martyred in odium fide means out of hatred for the faith so there's no miracle required but the miracle required for the canonization was actually a woman who had just given birth um, to her third child and went into a coma and a word of failure and the the doctor called the family more or less said you know say goodbye to her because she's not going to last the night um and it's that seed, you know, the the life cycle, the death and life coming together, and that this new life is coming forth, be it from the miracles of Paul VI and from Romero, you know, you've got the new life and the seed growing. Um, and 
Romero's intercession there. So the fact that already in life he knew that the seed would bear fruit, not because he would be canonized or beatified, but because, I suppose, first of all, he trusted that the Lord would bring grace out of this, but also he knew that this was the fight to fight and that the people would have to find their voice um, and that the inspiration that he tried to give um, would resonate with the people and that they would fight. Now, it took a number of years um, and El Salvador continued to you know, fight this battle. But eventually, you know, they did. And um, I, I think it was lovely because the beatification didn't take place in Rome. It took place locally. So it gave them the opportunity to celebrate their, their Monsignor, as they used to call him. But like for years, he was already known as St. Romero of the Americas. Um, I remember getting a calendar maybe about seven years ago um, from a Hispanic community. And it was the picture was Romero and it had already on it St. Romero. So um, you can imagine my the way ahead of us. And, you know, I was, I was very excited then when I saw, you know, throughout the past few months that the news was confirmed that the canonization was going to happen. Which is happening this morning in in Rome. Now, unfortunately, we could we could talk about Romero for another hour, but unfortunately, we're 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 out of time for this section of the program. Um, and we might come back to this again if we get an opportunity, because I know John also wants to talk about Paul the Sixth, um, but who also, of course, is being or canonized in 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 Rome this morning. And of course, Paul the Sixth is very much associated with the the Council, um, because of course he he convened the Council after the death of John the Twenty Third, and also had to have the responsibility of of uh, implementing the the changes that the Council decreed. And of course, Paul is very much associated with different encyclicals. The most famous one we did a couple of weeks ago was Humanae Vitae, but also very much, I suppose, he he, he, he wore, looked to the poor as well, like Romero, um, with his encyclical Populario Progressio, um, but he also reminded the church itself has a constant need of being evangelised and that people today listen more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And I suppose this morning in Rome, Pope Francis is putting, for, putting before the universal church um, two particular uh, witnesses for the gospel and I suppose we pray to the intercession of uh, Saint Paul the Sixth and Saint Oscar Romero um, for the grace and the witness that the church can continue its role in the world today Sister Louise thank you very much for taking us through that about yeah, Oscar about Romero this morning we're delighted to have you on the programme Thank you it's been a pleasure Okay, so now at this stage, now we go for a second piece of music, and this one I played it a number of times. I like it. It's by Matty Hogan, and it's entitled "Who Will Speak." And actually, the words at the beginning of this uh, particular song are, are taken from Oscar Romero, Saint Oscar Romero. So let's hear this. The world that the Church must serve is the world of the poor. Persecution of the church is the result of defending the poor. My life has been threatened many times. I have to confess that, as a Christian, I do not believe in death without resurrection. If they kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadorian people. speak for the poor and the broken, who will speak for the peoples oppressed, who will speak so their voice will be heard, oh, who will speak if you 
Sacred Space 